the end of the Anti-Racism Advisory Committee. This week, Taproot published a story about the disbanding of the Anti-Racism Advisory Committee. We'll dig into what that means and talk with an expert about the implications. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 226. Mac, my solar is installed. My house is now producing electricity and the rebate is coming from the city of Edmonton to my bank account. So success story noted. The long saga has come to an end. How does it feel to be pumping jewels back into the grid? You know, pretty good. But as is typical for me, I have now found something else to complain about. And my neighbor's <laughs> trees are just too tall, Mac. They're blocking, They're blocking the sun. The sun? Oh. Yeah. If only you could have foreseen that. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, a little bit of a protractor and a ruler and eyes would have uh, alerted me to this problem. Uh, one way to solve this problem would be to burn them all down. Uh, I won't do that yet, but I will jump into the rapid fire segment. Instagram Threads, the Twitter clone from the parent company of Facebook, launched this week to very high signup numbers. While the app appears to be the most successful so far of the various Twitter competitors, it remains to be seen how it will fare long-term without critical features like chronological followers-only timelines, hashtags, or a desktop website. Unfortunately, while I was tasked with writing a Threads review, I was unable to turn one in, and instead... I just couldn't get past that there's no hashtags. Hashtag Yeg, hashtag Yeg. Why won't it let me hashtag Yeg? Don't they know who I am? Beginning July 10th, 35 Edmonton police officers will begin wearing body-worn cameras in order to trial different technologies and systems. While some have lauded the change as a way to potentially boost police accountability and oversight, some are raising the alarm bells about unintended consequences. The largest complaint comes from a collective of Tim Hortons employees upset that they will now be subject to 24-7 surveillance. This summer, the Edmonton Arts Council is putting on free live Green Shack shows in city parks to help parents find activities for their kids while school is out. This program is multifaceted, both to bring enjoyment for Edmontonian families, but it also has an educational component. For example, the July 4th show featured Amanda Panda's hula hoop art, and it aimed to both entertain kids and prepare them for a lifetime of jumping through hoops to get anything they want from their city. Speaking Municipally is a publication of Taproot Edmonton, uh, who incidentally publishes a whole host of stuff, including a story this week. Yeah, this story is going to be the subject of our of our episode this week, but we published something called uh, or headlined Mayor Laud's Anti-Racism Efforts Amid Acrimony. It's a longish story. It's a feature story. And it's a, one of those stories that is kind of interesting and not at the same time. Uh, you have to be a little bit of a municipal politics nerd to really care about this kind of thing, even though what the story tries to explain, I think, really does impact all of us. So uh, like a lot of great Taproot stories, this one started with curiosity from our community. And that curiosity was just what happened to the Anti-Racism Advisory Committee? So this committee that was struck to try and move this important work forward was paused. If you look at the website on, on the city's, the page on the city's website, there's no minutes for the last meeting. A bunch of meetings were canceled. There was no information about what happened to this committee. And so we started to look into well, what did happen to this committee. And of course, when you start to tug on a thread like that to, to stick with the whole threads thing in this episode, you get to see some other things as well. As journalists, not everything we learn is on the record. Not everything we, we learn can fit into a story. And our job is really just to try to condense what we've learned into something that is readable, that helps people understand the context of this thing a little bit better. And one of the reasons I think it was important for us to publish this story, and you'll read this right off the top, is that our mayor has been 
not only making motions about anti-racism, that was his first motion of the term, but traveling to Germany to talk about how great Edmonton's efforts at anti-racism are. So it was a little bit surprising to learn that while he's around the world talking about the great work that's happening here, we've got the folks here in Edmonton who are part of this committee upset with the way that things have gone and not feeling like that work is actually progressing in a productive way. And so that's the sort of context that we tried to provide with the story to get that on the record a little bit and to try to really understand like what's happening, what's the state of this anti-racism work in Edmonton and to get into a little bit of like what comes next. And one story can't do all of that. I'm sure there will be follow-up reporting from Taproot and and from others about, about this. And as the mayor says, this is not a project that is going to happen in a week or two. This is something that's going to take, you know, this anti-racism work takes quite some time. So there will be lots of opportunities to dig into this in the future. But this first story uh, really just answers that question. What happened to the Anti-Racism Advisory Committee and what? how does that help us understand, you know, the nature of this work in Edmonton? I encourage our listeners to go ahead and read the story, but the Cliff's notes of what happened is the committee was paused and now has been formally disbanded, uh, definitely disbanded in all forms that are material to the committee itself. But you had mentioned that this was maybe Sohi's tentpole legacy building project. This was his first motion of cancel. And indeed, in his campaign, he campaigned on anti-racism quite a bit. Taproot reached out to him for this story. And in the headline, it says that he uh, lauds anti-racism efforts. Did he have anything to say in defense of how this committee was structured and then destructured? I think that the gist of what the mayor said to us and, you know, great, good on the mayor for actually talking to us. We tried to interview several other councillors and they, you know, didn't want to go on the record about this, but the mayor did. And and the gist of his comments were that, you know, the committee is just one element of this work, one aspect of this work and the committee's existence or, you know, the work that they did uh, to pro- progress the uh, strategy was really important and that work is done, but that doesn't mean we necessarily need to have a committee in perpetuity. And there's going to be other things that come forward to help move this work forward. So he really didn't see the end of the committee as a major problem. It's interesting because several of the committee members did see it as a problem. They didn't feel like their work was done. And I think, you know, there's some important questions to be raised now around the, the amount of involvement and the type of involvement that the community has into this work, because it feels like a lot of it has fallen now to administration, who, as we know, Troy, are, you know, a lot of white folks in senior leadership at, at administration. We've seen other reporting from other outlets about some of the departments at the city that have dealt with, you know, racism and, and, and other um, concerns like harassment and things like that. So uh, it does leave some questions, right, about how are we going to make sure this work actually gets moved forward if it's all on administration's plate? And and we do have strategies and policies around public engagement. So what is the role for the community in this work? Yeah, certainly I get nervous about city administration not representing my white Edmontonian culture because of the St. Albert bent of administration. <laughs> I can't imagine someone with meaningful uh, discrimination concerns might have indeed more concerns about administration-led uh, administration-led anti-racism. Well, of course, with a topic like this, it always behooves us to get uh, what I like to call the adult in the room, or an expert in this case. And we have someone great for that specific goal in this case, Irfan Chaudhry. He's been involved in anti-racism work for several years in Edmonton. He was actually Edmonton's first and only race relations specialist, and he's also a hate crime researcher and an instructor at McEwen. Welcome to the show, Irfan. 
Awesome. Thanks for having me. We should also mention that you are an Edmonton police commissioner. That's mm-hmm. on the record. But like we covered in our episode with Ann Stevenson, commissioners are not free to simply go talk to the media about their role on the commission. So you're coming to us specifically as a race researcher, as someone with expertise in this field and not in your role as a police commissioner. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for clarifying that. Uh, You also have a new role, which I thought was pretty interesting. You're the inaugural VP of Diversity and Inclusion at Hockey Canada. Congratulations. I am. Yeah, thanks so much. A lot of lot of great work ahead of us for sure, but excited to get started. Yeah, so thanks. Thanks for the congrats there. Well, let's start with just your first reaction when you read the story. What 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 were the thoughts that you had? What were the reactions you had to that story? Yeah, I mean, I thought, you know, I thought the the story was well written. I thought it gave a really balanced kind of view of not just the most recent iterations of this work, but I think just, you know, so a lot of this work has been ongoing, uh, especially when you look at it from like an action plan perspective, but we haven't really seen too much in terms of like the actual actions being being carried out. I know in my time from 2012 until now, uh, including the Race and Free Edmonton Action Plan, which was developed in 2009, there was another one that was also developed in like 2015, but for the life of me, I can't find it anywhere online anymore, which I think I think we can dive into that a bit further as well. And then you have, you know, another strategy that that's come out really kind of reaffirming the same things that were even shared years ago. And so I think that's where when you look at the article, some of the people that have been even quoted, the current board chair for the Africa Center, for example, I know Kimo from my time when I was with the city doing the race relations uh, stuff, and I can appreciate his, his frustration. I think I'm I'm right there too, as we've had enough of, of these types of plans and strategies, uh, but very little, little action. And, you know, the last thing I'll share, and then definitely happy to take other questions, is you know, when you look at this from an academic perspective, uh, there's a researcher out in the UK by the name of uh, Sarah Ahmed, a very, very, very critical about anti-racism work. And she wrote this really influential article a number of years back around, you know, anti-racism work or anti-discrimination work within the context of universities. But you do see it kind of also see it in the context of municipalities is the work is so focused on doing the document versus doing the actual doing that years can go by where all you can actually really show for your efforts is the document versus the actions from the document. And I think this is a really, the historical legacy of this work in Edmonton, I think alludes to that quite quite strongly. It seems to me that a lot of city work follows that pattern, right? We strike a committee, the committee's first job is to draft the terms of reference as if, you know, we've never had a committee's terms of reference before in our history. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then you get into the document, like you say, and you have this yeah. document, but you don't actually get into that action. Is that unique to Edmonton or in your experience, is this a common problem in other places? I think what ends up happening with anti-racism work specifically at some of these committee levels is sometimes they're being, you know, formated uh, with well intention, but then zero to no awareness on, okay, now we're all together. Uh, I will say one thing we forgot to, to add, that was also part of the, the Community Safety Task Force. Uh, we didn't spend any time on like terms of reference or, you know, anything like that. Like we, we got down to work uh, right away. Uh, and so I think when you have the appropriate structures in place from, let's say, municipal government in this in this topic, then you can focus on the work versus, you know, focusing on the governance. And I think that's where a lot of this work has been 
circling into just being stuck in the mud, for lack of better words, is because it just gets stuck in process versus performance and actions. Uh, so I don't think it's unique to Edmonton per se, but I do think it's something I've observed quite a, a number of times in and other anti-racism or EDI specific committees uh, at various levels and industries and sectors. Do you think part of this, of course, we're talking about the Anti-Racism Advisory Council, which in its name has advisory in its yeah. name. Do you think part of this of being just an advisory board versus something more like a working board, something that is more enfranchised to actually make change and has the decision makers and the action makers on the committee, do you think that structure is something that we might need more? Or is this a problem of we can have the advisory committee, the advisory committee works well, and we're just not implementing it properly. Is there a structural problem here? I think it's also a protective factor too, right? Because you as municipal government, we've seen the same thing, but even the provincial anti-racism advisory committee, what you just surmised is exactly what happened there. They spent almost two years working on recommendations for the government. Once those recommendations were finalized, it took said government about six months to release the report Report gets released and then the government just launches their own kind of platform that has recommendations that don't even anywhere mimic or mirror what was the work of the advisory committee. And I, I think that's an important point because that also burns people, right? Because people in Edmonton who've been doing anti-racism work for a very long time, they've seen the show many times before. And so I think to your point, when the advisory groups come together and you have demonstrated time after time after time that the advice, if you look at the reports, both from the municipal and provincial government, the recommendations are not that drastically different. Wording and impact might be a little bit different, but the suggestions are very, very similar. But there's always a lack of action, right? And so that's where I can see the frustration as someone like myself who's also been involved with the work outside of those those uh, kind of mechanisms. And now to some degree, having the opportunity to work internally to be able to pull some of those levers that, you know, I think, uh, Troy, to your point, could be uh, a systems issue. If you have the appropriate levers in-house to not make it a systems issue, I think that's also where you see the change. So you do need that outside momentum, but then you also need that internal mechanism where traditionally someone might say, no, you have someone who has the anti-racism awareness to say, why not? Or no, we should. And I think from my time to now, my understanding is there is a, me a mechanism internal within the city of Edmonton that is able to kind of do that. So that's been one positive shift, I think, in the last number of years in terms of having like a dedicated anti-racism lead. I can't remember what their title is uh, or where they're situated, but my understanding is it's fairly, fairly, you know, uh, high up uh, that you you have that position to to be that lever puller. Uh, to be a, a yes versus a no, or we can't do that, or it's uncomfortable, or, you know, this doesn't matter. I think those are mechanisms that haven't been in place before. Isn't there an element of this that is just white supremacy in action, though? Like, it feels to some degree like the leadership of the city, who's not all white, but is predominantly white, and certainly the structures exist with this white supremacist legacy, 
it, it just kind of feels like we said, well, let's put all the people of color on a committee and task <laughs> them with doing the hard work of figuring out what we should do about anti-racism. Yeah, and at that point too, even I think ARAC uh, wasn't being compensated in similar ways that you know some of the other boards and commissions are, right? When you put people together, whether it's looking at anti-racism strategy, whether it's looking at naming policies for streets, and signs, whether it's the various other committees that are there. These are citizens who have expertise in an area that are taking their time. So I think there needs to be more of an equitable approach in terms of that compensation piece. And I know that wasn't your question, but I thought that was something I would just kind of uh, allude to because it does kind of speak more to that systemic and systems approach, right? You know, each and you guys know this more than me, like each mayor likes to leave some kind of a legacy. And I think for our current mayor, it's the anti-racism work that likely is something he wants to establish as his legacy. I know when I was with the city of Edmonton as the race relations specialist, it was also the same time that uh, Mayor Sohi was Councillor Sohi. Uh, and guess guess what, Mac? Who was the council appointee to race in Edmonton? <laughs> it was Councillor Sohi. Councillor Sohi. Right? Yeah. But I think you know, I always I always kind of struggle with that type of a question because you know it's always that that balance around tokenism on one degree but then also being included in decision-making to another degree. So I think there's still value in having those with lived experiences provide insight into the work, but I don't think it should be on the backs of those with lived experiences to carry out the work. Or if it is being carried out, then it needs to be carried out in a way that's equitable through compensation. So when you talk about white supremacy, though, we also have to look at it from like policy impact and policy implication. And this to me is my biggest frustration with this work in this city. I'm going to be as respectful as I can, but I also get frustrated because you have a lot of well-intentioned people in positions of, of power, whether through council or whether through city administration, that quote, you know, Ibram X. Kendi to death in terms of like, it's not enough to be not racist, you have to be anti-racist, right? Like I've heard the city manager, I don't know how many times I've heard him say it verbatim. And I think mm -hmm. he means it. I think he means it, right? However, when it comes to action, that's where the proof is in in the in the pudding. I think that's the saying, right? One of Ibram X. Kendi's other statements, which I haven't heard anyone uh, kind of use as much, is you know there's no racist people; it's just racist policy. And racist policy is essentially policy that's enacted that has a majority uh, of a negative impact on communities of color. And there's been a number of policies that have even come through or changes to bylaw. You know, I don't want to get into this issue, but you can go onto my Twitter feed to see the one I'm, I'm, I'm going to be referring to. But even something like the ban around uh, shisha smoking, even that ban being used from like a public health perspective, which I can understand, if you look at the definition of racist policy from Ibram X. Kendi, that is an example of a racist policy because it has negative impact majority on communities of color who utilize those spaces, right? For various reasons. Mm -hmm. I don't want to discount the impacts of hate motivated violence based on race. That is extremely important, but there's a mechanism for that if it's criminal related. And also with the new bylaw shifts around street harassment, including racial and sexual harassment, we have that mechanism in place. So I think those pieces we can still enforce and still protect on those violence or harassment pieces. I don't want to say that's the easier of the two, but that one is more observable in terms of the impact. You know, people are being targeted because of skin color, so we can improve or increase enforcement or other mechanisms to ensure their safety in that degree. But when we have policies that we as a city are imp uh, implementing to save efficiencies, to save money, but then you're seeing it impact people and communities of color in a negative way, 
and certain administrators and counselors just ignoring the fact that it has racist implications, that to me is what's going to be the challenge, right? So we can say we want to be as anti-racist as we want to and whatever example people want to utilize. But if we're not looking at the impacts of those policy, one of the arguments that always come back is, well, we do a GBA plus analysis, okay? But there's also limitations to that analysis. Based on things I've seen, that analysis oftentimes is extremely weak, if not poorly done. And, you know, I can even think about examples where they'll have the section of a GBA plus analysis, you know, has a GBA plus analysis been done? Default responses uh, didn't have time, didn't have the data. Uh, or yes, one was done, couldn't find any negative impact. And it's so to me, it's like, well, how how intentional is that? But I think those are the impacts that need to be looked at. Are our policies being looked at from that lens? And if they are, what are the protective mechanisms in place to ensure if these policies are voted on, how are we going to mitigate those types of systemic barriers? So to your first point around is this white supremacy and systemic bias and discrimination in action, I would say yes in terms of when you kind of start to map out those impacts from well-intentioned policy to very inequitable impacts based on racial and ethnic uh, considerations. When you're talking about the policies, I think you're getting at, to some degree, what the mayor, I think, means when he talks about that this anti-racism work is generational, that it takes a long time for this to have the kind of outcomes, the kind of impacts that you're looking for. Certainly things like the zoning bylaw, which historically has been used for racist purposes or maybe has some foundations in that. And, you know, we have an opportunity now to make some changes. That's a generational kind of bylaw, right? That's the kind of thing that will take time for the implications to be felt. It's interesting that you think maybe uh, Mayor Sohi is looking for anti-racism work to be his his legacy project, given that. And I totally understand what you mean, because it was his very first motion at council. Yeah. But it strikes me as maybe a challenging thing to leave as a legacy when it takes such a long time for the real implication of that work to come to fruition. You raise a good point, right? Because you can't just leave this as a legacy of someone who's likely going to be cycled out in one or two election cycles. So I think, and I don't have the internal information, of course, but I think if they're setting up administratively to be set up for that longevity, then that's a success, right? So if you're establishing these roles that have anti-racism as a focus and it's part of like, you know, whatever standardized uh, mechanism they have in place for uh, City of Edmonton employees, that you know it's always going to be a position, that I think that longevity is there. You know, right now, even if we don't pick on the on the mayor, you know, there's even a couple of counselors that are very strong around anti-racism. But again, when push comes to shove and it comes time to voting or time to impact on policy, that's where there is discomfort, right? And to me, that's more so the impact. It's not just the mayor. It's also how other counselors support the work in in more meaningful ways than just, you know, coming up for a photo op. It's interesting when you were talking about some of the things that we've done and historically, it almost feels, and not to be reductive, but that anti-racism is almost pet project, right? Uh, Mayor Sohi, then Councillor Sohi, he was the steward. He was the one who was guiding that project. And without him guiding it, it fell to the wayside. You know, Don Iveson picked up, uh, I remember the Make It Awkward campaign. Uh, there was there's that that um, I'm sure we can all agree was dazzlingly effective. Like you said, there's no real structural ingrained anti-racism in the city of Edmonton. It almost feels like it's something that counselors pick up and as counselors get unelected, it falls to the wayside. I wonder, though, do you feel like this is 
the municipality's responsibility. And I say that because, you know, recently we have the uh, single-use bylaw, I think, as a great example, where the pushback from the entire community is, council needs to be focused on the core things. Roads, Mm, garbage, water. Exactly. Um, And is this the best order of government to be tackling this work? I mean, in my opinion, in an ideal world, all three layers of government should be should be. Yes, is the short answer. But I'm going to give you now the long winded reason for why it's a yes. At one point in time in Canada, we were we were almost there. We were almost there because, you know, at the federal level, shortly after 9-11, the federal government launched like a a federal anti-racism strategy. Part of the anti-racism strategy was the creation of CMARD, Canadian Municipalities Against Racial Discrimination. And so almost every city, including the city of Edmonton, signed up to be a part of CMARD. And what that network allowed you to be is a part of that network that had connection points to federal initiatives around anti-racism, including federal funding that provided for a a more strategic approach. So the federal government is kind of convening municipalities together on this umbrella of CMARD. CMARD developed this incredible toolkit that was way too long than it needed to be, but it was like incredible in terms of what can municipalities do to address racism at that very local level. And so you had all these municipalities across Canada sign up and start to action. Who was missing from this equation, though, at that time, though, is the province, right? There was no provincial interaction points at all uh, under Prime Minister or then Prime Minister Harper's conservative government. Anti-racism funding at the federal level was actually disbanded and it was re rebranded as immigration and settlement. And so that's where a lot of like longstanding organizations in Edmonton specifically that had strong impact on anti-racism work, where I think, you know, Troy, going to your point, they were probably better suited to do the work in partnership with municipalities. But when they lost that federal funding, it, it demolished them. Like the Center for Race and Culture, I would say never recovered from that at that time, Minister Kenny was in that same portfolio, right? So that's why when he became premier, I was holding my breath in terms of how the impact would be happening on anti-racism funding opportunities. And lo and behold, I don't think I was I was surprised because under his leadership, the Alberta Human Rights Education Grants, uh, which was one of the only streams available at the provincial level to address you know, all forms of, you know, human rights education violation, which it would include, you know, anti-racism training, uh, that fund was essentially stopped. And so in that span of like a five-year period, the biggest federal and provincial granting opportunities that were available are gone. This is where the city stepped up. So this is where I think municipalities have a very, very strong role to play is to supplement and provide consistency to anti-racism work specifically, because we've seen in the past relying just on provincial funds or federal funds isn't sustainable because at any given time with a change of government, that could go away. Well, our story identifies that the city of Edmonton will continue to put some money into this. And, and in fact, Mayor so he told us that they're increasing the funding to like $1.5 million a year for the anti-racism grant. So there's there's some, at least money from the municipality going into this over the next several years, at least for this budget cycle. But the committee is still paused. And the mayor doesn't seem to think that that's a challenge, really, that it won't hold back our efforts on anti-racism. So I guess I'm wondering, what do you think would be productive progress in the next few years? Like, how should the city of Edmonton continue to steward this work? Is it really about 
making those more structural internal changes in, in administration so that we can get away from the council champion model? Or are there other things you think, you know, we should see happening in Edmonton to ensure that this, you know, work does continue on and does actually get toward action and not just strategies? Yeah, no, I think I think having that dedicated funding is one piece. I think, you know, as we talked about having it embedded within administration, so it's not just, you know, up to a counselor or a mayor to have that as their project. You know, I think back, you know, even though Mayor Iverson maybe didn't focus too much on anti-racism specifically, I think an argument can be made in terms of the progress he made around indigeneity, right, within the city. You know, now he's he's obviously gone and having a mayor who also aligns with those values can carry on some of that work and then also build up some of the other aspects around uh, inclusion. So I think that helps. So it'll be interesting to see when a new mayor comes in place, you know, how that evolves. But that's why I think internally from a administrative perspective, it needs to be, it needs to be established. I mean, well, just on that administration thing, like what does that look like? Is one person who's in charge of anti-racism enough? Like what what does that look like internally? And then it just sort of, the next question was, you know, what else, what else, like in addition to funding and, you know, some changes within administration, clearly there should be some public engagement on this. So the loss of this committee is potentially concerning, but you mentioned earlier, there's like community safety and wellbeing task force. It seems like there's maybe other opportunities to carry some of that work ahead. Municipalities have a strong role outside of funding, and this goes to your question. They have to always be a convener. There was a really good article uh, that I can't find. I wanted to share with you uh, that a colleague of mine who worked with the city had shared around the role that municipalities have in anti-racism work. And there's three main umbrellas. I always forget the second and third umbrella, but umbrella number one always sticks out to me. City as convener, right? The city has that ability to bring in, let's say, all the groups that they funded around anti-racism work to convene and share best practices to be able to make sure, like, did that work? What else is needed? What further supports needed? I think that work is also critical because when you're convening uh, in a way that you're... So what I observed with my time as the city, the concern was always that the city will come in and take over. And that's yeah. where we'd always have to be mindful of like, no, no, we're here to collaborate. We can even taking care of the the logistics, right? Getting space, making sure there's catering, because uh, most people are able to come evenings and weekends. So as a result, also making sure there's childcare available if possible. Uh, alternative ways of, you know, post-COVID, making sure the virtual options are, are, are a thing bus passes, right? All these logistic things to remove as much barriers as possible is the city's responsibility to convene. But then also from that convening should come action. And that's where, whether it's the city, whether it's the province, I think that's where things often do fall apart um, because there's no dedicated point person, let's say, to action it. But with the province, with their anti-racism strategy, you know, you can go online and find it. They have all these wonderful reports and recommendations, but they have not outlined who's responsible and they've not outlined when this work will start. And that is also a challenge. I know I wouldn't get my commission to have on, but I'm just going to sneak it in really quickly because one of the things that we've tried to look at is, you know, how uh, different, uh, like Ontario, for example, recommended uh, the collection of race-based data. And so that included policing. And so we've been interested to see how the that kind of unfolds here at the provincial level. If you look at the provincial government's anti-racism strategy, 
It's very weak. They kind of mention the collection of race-based data, but they speak more so around data integrity as relates to uh, data collection, and this would include race-based data. But that's not that's not strong enough, right? So that's also where cities can push back and say, letter from mayor and council, we are following up on your recommendation on the collection of race-based data, and this is where we think we want to see some urgency. So I think that's also where some of the push can happen as well. This idea of city as convener is really interesting. I think that's a pretty powerful idea, actually. Is it concerning then that they seem to have taken over part of the role of this committee? Because it wasn't just advisory. This committee also you know, made recommendations, which generally are rubber stamped uh, by council, made recommendations for where the grant funding should go. And that now is being done to our understanding by city administration. And it's not clear you know, who the point person might be at city administration or who are the folks working on this file uh, yeah, within administration. Yeah. It's a little less transparent, it seems now, that this committee is on pause. Is that something we should be concerned about? Um, I mean, I think, yeah, from a transparency perspective, absolutely, right? I think I, I, I share the same considerations. But what I also reflect on, you know, some of the concerns raised uh, both from ARAC members, uh, from city councillors about ARAC, and then also people that have just kind of observed their work. At some at some point, a committees can also be counterproductive to the work that's trying to be achieved. And I don't know too much about the inner intricacies, but just some of the passing conversations that people have had with, you know, people who were either presenting at an ARAC meeting or, you know, were on ARAC for a, a, a term. I think that's some of the challenges that they observed is sometimes they were their own detriment. I think, ironically enough, ARAC was the author of their own demise because their first recommendation was the creation of a independent anti-racism body separate from other city bodies, right? That was their recommendation. Really, really good recommendation, but that in and of itself is now making an entity like ARAC in the current way that it's structured, it's making it obsolete, right? Yeah. And so I think that's where the city right now likely has to take more of like that intervener role, because they're transitioning between committees. Uh, otherwise, the work won't get done. And so I think, you know, if I go back and play devil's advocate with like the last line you have there with the mayor's uh, comments, you know, I don't think pausing ARAC's work has any way hindered our work on anti-racism. I think that's fair because whether or not they're moving forward directly on their work, like that's where some of the other aspects come into play. But the fact that anti-racism work is still being pushed, it hasn't lost focus. I think that to me, is a positive space. Now, when this new iteration is in place, yeah. and I think in your article it said like it's already in place, but it's not public. Is that correct? Like I think right. I read they're, it somewhere. They're kind of developing it is our understanding, right? Yeah. Like they're in okay. the process of creating this body. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I think that's the piece is once that's established, how different are they going to be from ARAC? Or is it just like ARAC 2.0? <laughs> and then exactly your your comments, right? Like, is this going to be the body that will carry out uh, the work? And then that that whoever lead or internal administrative kind of point of contact, you know, I've sat on enough committees where I do see value. Like I sit on a, a federal committee right now around countering radicalization of violence, where it's me and a few other people from across the country. And we just provide our insight. We just provide our expertise. Federal government employees, they're doing all the logistics. They're doing all the report drafting. They're doing all the heavy lifting work for us right. as the subject matter experts to review, provide feedback, and then wait for the next iteration. I think that works well 
because that way you're just there for the reasons you're there for to provide your insight and you're not there worried about oh crap now me as a volunteer we committed to having these action steps so now i got to create a subcommittee of the volunteers and now you know what i mean like that i can appreciate that model is not equitable at all and right. so if this work is to be done purposely proper governance and proper support Right. Those are two pieces that the city can definitely uh, provide uh, if this is something that they want to do properly. Well, Irfan, thanks for giving us such a uh, helpful context around this. Certainly, you've got a lot of history on this file. Anything else that comes to mind as you're thinking about where we're at with anti-racism work in Edmonton? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I wanted to add is, you know, I mentioned it earlier. I'm just always curious, you know, what happened with that. Uh, you know, there's like a secondary report or strategy that came out. I want to say like 18 or 19, like before the pandemic, for sure. That was community driven, connected with communities around what would be helpful and, you know, really informed by communities. And it was like a very thick, thick package that had nice graphics and wheels of action and all of that. And then it just all of a sudden like disappeared. Like I still, mm. I have a, I have a physical copy of it somewhere, but I can't find uh, a digital copy. Uh, and then same thing with racism free Edmonton. Like there, the action plan has been scraped from the city of Edmonton's entities. And to me, you know, I think there's importance in having those documents, even as legacy documents, because you can see where, you know, maybe there is some promising pieces and maybe there's pieces that, we shouldn't be doing, but at least having that legacy for people like us who want to make sure we're building off of the previous work. Otherwise, we're going to be doing exactly this, right? We're going to be recreating something. Three years from now, the three of us are going to go on the exact same podcast and talk about the next anti-racism strategy that got developed because this is so cyclical, right? And yeah. I think that's what really needs to stop. But when you think about this generationally, you know, the mayor is not kidding, right? You know, you think about some of this work at the federal level that started in like the late 80s, early 90s, and it's now 2023. Like how, how much have we actually shifted in a positive mm -hmm. way? I would argue in the context of the pandemic, we've actually likely highlighted where we're really at. We've not made much progress. And, you know, there's aspects of us that are super racist. Uh, and we see that quite, quite strongly. Uh, and we have some of those views at uh, provincial levels and federal levels and schools and policing and, you know, all of our institutions, right? But that's where if we have mechanisms in place to say those types of perspectives are not tolerated and we actually action them, then at least we're pushing that accountability needle a bit more. Well, uh, thanks for joining us, Irfan. This has been very insightful. And um, yeah, thank you. you know, we've gone a little bit over our time, but sorry about as, that. as always with um, guests like this, if the conversation flows, the conversation flows and we've got to gotta record it. But we've let you have the platform to talk about uh, anti-racism. Is there anything you personally want to plug? You know, you came and join us. Is there anything you want to share with our listeners? Any places you want them to visit? Action items you want them to view? Anything like that? Now's your floor. Yeah, no, thanks for that opportunity. I think, you know, shamelessly, you know, we talked about some funding that is available from the federal level. So, you know, a few years back, you know, when I was with McCune University, we received uh, a nice portion from the Federal Anti-Racism Action Project to develop uh, growthegame.hockey. So the URL is growthegame.hockey. Uh, that's a space for resources connected to uh, addressing or understanding racism within the context of hockey. Uh, there's some good toolkits, videos, podcasts, articles, However you consume the media, we likely have something for you there. So yeah, it'd be great. You know, grow the game to hockey. Want to make sure people are aware of that. So thanks for that opportunity to plug. 
And uh, people can find you on Instagram threads, Mastodon, <laughs> bluesky.social. Those are the main ones, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of the above. Right now, my main one I drive people to is my Twitter handle, but I don't know why because there's little to no action. You're seeing limited tweets. But yeah, uh, I-R-F-A-N-Y-E-G is where you can still, uh, you know, hate tag me and then block me uh, until, <laughs> you know, until those those get limited as well. Yeah, it's, it ter- Twitter's terrible right now. Like, yeah, but that's... That's where you can find me. Yeah, <laughs> Twitter is terrible right now. Something that everyone has said since 2010. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again for joining us, Irfan. It was a pleasure having you. Yeah. Well, of course, this was one of Taproot's big stories that got some coverage today. Like Max said at the top, it was a feature story. Uh, but not all stories are features. And indeed, a lot of Taproot's reporting is on the ground daily updates that lets you know everything you need to know about the city of Edmonton. And where do you find that? That's in The Pulse. It's Taproot's daily news briefing. It tells you everything you need to know about Edmonton every weekday morning. And you get short, informative updates about what's happening at City Hall and coverage of business, tech, foods, the arts, and more. Uh, You can check it out at taprootedmonton.ca after you finish reading this feature story. And you can go ahead and subscribe to The Pulse then. Yeah, we'd love if you did that. I also just want to take a quick opportunity to mention that the story that we've been talking about this whole episode is written by Nathan Fung, and a lot of the editing work was done by Karen Unland, uh, who we've had on the show before. Uh, but, you know, the stories like this take an awful lot of work. You know, this has been in the in the works at Taproot for, for several weeks, and there's so many check-ins to GitHub and uh, comments and questions and interviews and all kinds of things that go into trying to just understand what is actually true for stories like this. So I think it's really important to recognize that. And and thank you for all of our Taproot members and readers and subscribers who support us to make sure that we continue can continue to do this work in Edmonton. So I think there's a bit of a sausage gets made moment right here. You do your story drafting and journalism in GitHub. We are fully running on GitHub and Visual Studio Code. All of our editorial workflow and processes is uh, is done there. We use issues for our stories. We use Git source control for our markdown files. We use GitHub actions for you know automation of uh, moving things along the workflow. We are essentially a software development company that doesn't write software. We write stories, which shouldn't be surprising given my background, you know? Of course. Um, but, you know, that is an interesting tidbit that... This is something, there should be a story about that, Mac. That's that's some interesting stuff that even I, your co-host of going on five years now, did not know. Well, as you know, it's not generally recommended that you put large audio files in Git. So, you know, we don't use it for, uh, for the podcast. <laughs> but that is all for the podcast for this week. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Matt. And I'm Irfan. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. municipally.